study. There are different ways to look at what we're going to look at today. In, the, in its simplest form, Christ says, follow me. And if we do, we follow him into the church and we come through a book like Ephesians and the, the verses we're going to look at today and we realize, okay, this is how I follow him. This is what I do next. Um, we receive it eagerly. We move into it. We become what is really, Paul explaining, a very high standard um, for a local body of believers um, that was established when Christ rose from the dead. We see that standard carried highly in the early chapters of the book of Acts in Jerusalem. Um, we see that standard and, and the format and the construction and all of those things going into it here in Ephesians. Really, when you look at all of Paul's letters, if, if you divided categories, um, the majority of all of his letters and all of his chapters are holy living. Um, so we have the structure of the church, we have the prophecies of the church, we have all of those things, and really, at least my experience, is that those are the things that I connected to growing up. You know, this is where he talks about the church, this is where he talks about the rapture, and, and when, when you back up just a little bit, those things are in the middle of a chapter that begins with holy living and ends with holy living. There isn't a place in the New Testament, for example, that talks about prophecy, that the purpose of the prophecy is holy living. Um, since you know this, Paul would say, um, John would say that everyone who knows this would be pure. Heavenly Father, as we step into um, further understanding your church, your plan, um, it is difficult for us to imagine that, that we could be an Ephesians 4 church, um, but we are grateful that you promised that we can. Help us to understand better today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul has been describing how God puts a church together to this point in chapter 4. We're picking it up in verse 17 with the word so, so I want to back up to the transitional word there, where, what he's referring specifically to. And again, the, all that we studied last week um, has its purpose as the last two verses that we studied. And so brings us back to those. Verse 15, instead speaking the, actually verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants. This is what happens if we become the church that he has called us to be. We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, this is the goal. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect a mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So, so he is taking the person in a sense that says, I accept that. That's my goal. If it's God's goal, it's mine. If a church accepts that, that's our goal. That's what we want to be. So, Paul says, 
I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Remember some of these things as we look in Romans, the hardening of their hearts. Verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over, remember those words, to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. So Paul is telling us that if we are going to become this, if infantism or childish, the the Greek word napios that we learned last week, childlike, childish, if we're going to stop being childish. What's childish? Childish is a common church. We do our religious duty, we find our way to a building, we sit for an hour, we go home, we check a box. Paul says that I was childish thinking that through the scriptures and religion at one time that that was the way. And he said when I became a man I stopped being childish. So he is encouraging us in the message last week, grow from infancy. So we have this structure that he gives apostles and prophets. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, he gives those first, meaning foundationally. Then he gives pastors and teachers to equip people for works of service so they become mature, no longer infants. Bound together as ligaments in love as each part does its work. So the picture we had as we prayed last week is the picture that's a visual but if it's a reality, we are a church that the gates of hell cannot withstand. So Paul says, after explaining that God brings that all together, that he'll bring all of the power, all of the grace, all of the, the work from heaven that needs to be done, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in me, leads to thy kingdom come, thy will be done in here, if we do it together. So, Paul says, verse 17, be mature. Don't do what you used to do. Stop sinning. Be faithful. Be servants of God. Um, if you turn back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we remember that same condition that was all of us. Um, that is simply described in verse 2 as disobedient, but verse 1 of chapter 2 as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So we deserved wrath, we were dead, we were disobedient. And Paul says that, so if you want to be the church that God wants you to be, you have to take all of that stuff that had Jim's purpose and you have to get rid of it. And all of the stuff that is God's purpose, you have to receive it. You have to do it. It can't just be knowledge, it has to be experiential. 
And if we do, we'll become that church. Turn to Romans chapter 1 as Paul is in much more detail describing exactly what we read in verses 17 through 19 of Ephesians 4. In Romans 1, Paul is describing what is the condition of humanity. So the United States and what it looks like today compared to what it looked like when we were founded is extremely different. So if you take Turkey as a country and Ephesus is in what is modern day Turkey and you look at 100 A.D., and what that country looked like, it was won over by God. And it today is an Islamic stronghold. So the transition or, or the growing forward of things led by human beings, if they don't stay in Rome or Ephesians chapter 4, the natural progression is what we see in Romans. The natural progression of a country is what we see in Romans 1 in the first three verses we've looked at today. So this happens unless we say, God, you lead my life. So Paul is describing at length what we just looked at in Ephesians 4, beginning in Romans 1, 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, talking about creation, talking about eternal thoughts, talking about what God has given. Verse 24, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. We won't stay here long, but again, a human being is responsible to God for what God has revealed to them. So to you and I, that's extensive. We hold his purpose in our hands, and we can look at it without persecution. To an Islamic child in Iran who will be killed if he holds a Bible in his hand, God will start with creation. Will you acknowledge me that I have made everything? If that Islamic boy says yes, God will put something else in front of him, and then he will put something else in front of him. And we realize that Abraham grew up in that same environment, and he kept saying yes. You want me to go there? Okay. Why are we going there? I'll tell you later. Okay. You're, you're sovereign Lord. You're my master, my ruler. Okay. You want me to sacrifice my only son that I waited a hundred years for? Okay. That was Abraham. That was his journey with no Bible, starting with creation. It's obvious to all of us there is a cause that is greater than everything that has been caused and that's the starting place. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God or gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being 
and birds and animals and reptiles. We live in a country that values creation far more than creator. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Paul just explained to us in Ephesians, they hardened their own hearts. They gave themselves over. So why does it say that God gave them over? Because God says, I am here. I am calling to you. I have created for you to see. I am showing up in your path so you will respond. And you say, no, 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 no. And God says, okay. Because I love you, I will allow you to make your own choice. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4, to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who forever is praised. Amen. Global warming is more important to the country we live in than the God who created the world that we live in, we are far past that stage. The next stage, verse 26, because of this God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones in the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Stage two is homosexuality becomes rampant. That was in the 60s in this country where um, people were doing things to their bodies. They were getting more... Um, illicit drugs and they were doing sexual things that they weren't designed for and that's a natural progression of sin. And Paul is explaining that God gave them over to that. He, he resisted that. He resisted that and they said, God, we don't want you. We're not listening to you. We will acknowledge what you made. We will not acknowledge you. So you see Things, viral videos going out today of homosexual groups saying, we're coming after your children. We're taking your children. Saw a video of, of a woman shooting a jump shot with a baby into a dumpster having an abortion claiming victory. This is the world that we're living in today. We are past the stage that we just read. Furthermore, verse 28, as they did not think it worth while to retain the knowledge, the epignosis, the experiential knowledge of God. So God gave them over to a depraved mind. That's where we are today in this country. So that they do, they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Turn to 1 John, where Judy read from, and I didn't know I was going to use these verses when I 
gave her the verses that she read early in the week. John is, and Paul will as he goes through Romans, especially chapter 6 we'll see later today, he does exactly what he does in Ephesians. So in Ephesians and in Romans he explains the condition of a lost person. And if you're choosing to be a saved person, then you're choosing a life of obedience to God. Romans 1.5, Paul is a, the apostle to call all Gentiles to obedience to Christ for his sake. Um, in 1 John chapter 3, starts out with prophecy, things that he undoubtedly learned from Paul, and it builds to holy living if that's your reality. Verse 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are, exclamation mark. The reason the world does not know and that's that um, gnosko, that's that intimate place with a man and a woman that is this experiential, I know you, you know me, of God. Um, the reason the world does not have that knowledge and intimacy with us is because it does not have that knowledge and intimacy with Him. Dear friends, verse 2, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know, and this is not the same Greek word, this is intellectual knowledge. We know from what Paul has taught us that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. We haven't experienced that yet, but we know that it's true. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. That's a very accountable verse if you think about it. If you're a Christ follower, you're purifying yourself just as he is pure. We are created, we will relate, read later today, we are created to be like God who is the standard. Verse 4, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or, or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. If you're a child of God, what he's explaining to us in Romans chapter 4, or excuse me, Ephesians 4, is that if you're a Christ follower, here is your instructions. Put off the old self, put on the new self, obey God at every turn. So this could be a new believer in Ephesus, this could be a mature believer in Ephesus, but Paul is saying if you're a believer then it is expected of you and it will be a reality of you that you seek to live a holy and pure life. The power of God is waiting. So we have a, another word here, the seed of God. The seed is this encompassing of the Holy Spirit, the divine nature, grace, dynamis, the power of God, all of heaven 
is in you, and if that's true, sin stops. Because, John says, no one can keep on as normal as what they did before. The things I used to do, I still do some of those things. John says that's impossible because God's seed lives in you. That's impossible because you've been born again. Born again isn't a dramatic service and a dramatic prayer. It certainly can encompass that. Born again is I have died to the world and I live for Christ. And if I have made that decision, status quo is impossible. It can't happen. In Corinth, um, there were people there, and we read about it in 1 John chapter 5, that if you are truly born again and, and you become more like the world than you are the Son of God, that God will literally take you home. He will not allow his seed to be re represented by sin. So in 1 John 2, 6, um, John writes that whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. If we claim him as our Lord, then we testify of him by living the way that he lived. Back to Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 20. That is not, however, or that, however, is not the way of life you learned, you experienced, you were taught. Um, verse 21. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth, that is, in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What he's saying in this chapter is that here's God's plan, that we are all, all in, that we are fully surrendered as a body of believers joined together building up as each part does its work, becoming a mature body that cannot be broken, cannot be moved, testifies to the point where the manifold wisdom of God goes out of these walls into the community by the testimony of Christ-following believers. That's his plan. What he's saying here is that you have to put off all of you that limits that in any way. And you have to put on all that he is asking you to put on. And that's not required of my power. That's not required of my ability. But it is required of my surrender. Turn to Acts chapter 19. Paul begins verse 20 and verse 21. How you were taught. And I think that it, it, would, it would benefit us to see Paul doing evangelism in a community that isn't following Christ to see how he does it. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to look back. We're going to look in this time period of six years. Within six years, Paul is in Ephesus 
or with the Ephesian elders three times, and this is the fourth time where he's writing the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians, he's telling us what he told them from the beginning. So we go back to 55 A.D. He's writing this letter about 61 A.D. 55 A.D. when Paul went there to spend considerable time. Verse, um, we'll, we'll start in chapter 19, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there th for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But... Some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. So this territory that we read about in Revelation, um, this Asia Minor, which would have included Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea, Thyatira, Sardis, Pergamum, Ephesus, um, Philadelphia, this entire area focused around Ephesus, which is the pr primary city in Asia, this quarter million population city. So he goes into the synagogue and he preaches for three months and he effectively proves to them that the kingdom of God has a king. His name is Jesus. He died on the cross. You need to repent. At the end of three months, they said, get out of here. It doesn't mean that there weren't believers. When he says the disciples went with him, some of them would have been Jews that got saved in the synagogue. So from there, he goes to a lecture hall that is still known today called Tyrannus. And he now begins to offer to the Gentiles, like Acts chapter 17, when he's preaching in Athens, he's explaining to them who the God of heaven is, who the creator is, that he is the judge of the living and the dead, and that you need to repent. The same things that he preached in the synagogue. By this time, we, if we look in chapter 20 and verse 31, Paul is there over three years. And he is doing this every single day for three years. And at the end of the three years, he has been so extensive that there is not a person in this huge city that has never heard Paul. And he is telling us what he is telling them. So when we look in chapter um, 20 and verse 21... This is a couple years later when he is speaking to the Ephesian elders who would have believed in chapter 19, accepted Paul's message, and now they are leaders in the church, some of them appointed by Paul, and Timothy is becoming their pastor. So when we get in chapter 20 and verse 21... He says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks. Remember, we saw him in the synagogue and in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And Greeks, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So in one verse, he summarizes back to the Ephesian elders what he did for three and a half years. For three and a half years, whether you were a Jew who had the Old Testament or a Gentile who had nothing, he explained to you that you must repent 
You must turn to God and you must live for him. And um, he summarizes that in one verse. If we drop down to verse 26, remember he said he spoke to all of them in Acts 19. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So what we're reading in Ephesians, he's teaching them in Acts 19 that you must turn to God in repentance, turn away from your sins, make Christ Jesus your Lord, that you must put off the old self and put on the new self, that you must obey him and follow him in church, that you must come together as ligaments, that you must form a body that puts Christ over everyone and puts everyone over you, in your thinking, renewed in the attitude of your minds. So if we read in Ephesians 4, when what we just read, and we'll be back in Acts one more time, but in Ephesians 4, in that summary verse, he is explaining what he, why he is innocent of the blood of any of them. He explained to them repentance, Acts 20 and verse 21, and this is how he explained it to them. Verse 20, that however is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in accordance with him, with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, this is what repentance was preached by Paul. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That was Paul's gospel message. That was his message to a lost person. Let me be frank with you. Let me be upfront with you. What I'm inviting you to do is to die to yourself and to live for Christ. To put off who you are and to live for him. And I want you to know that you were created in the first place to be like him. And if you choose him, he will make you like him. Repent, turn, follow Christ. He's explaining to us in Ephesians 4 what he preached when he first went to Ephesus. So this is a worldly city of a quarter million people where he preaches for longer than he preaches in any church in the Bible. For three years he's telling them what we're reading in Ephesians 4. Turn back to Acts chapter 19 and we're just pulling out the high points to understand the progression. So he goes there in 55 AD. He says, you need to repent. Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. He died for you on the cross to prove how much he loves to you. You need to turn to him. You need to put off everything in your life that is you. You need to take on him and be your Lord. You need Acts 20, verse 21, to repent and turn to God. Look at the response in verse 18 of chapter 19. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. 
In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And I explained when we went through this passage earlier, they brought $11 million worth of books of witchcraft and sorcery and idols, and they openly confessed, we are repenting. We are turning to Jesus Christ. We are leaving this garbage behind and we are following him. So there's a dramatic explosion of the gospel. Paul would have had no easy days in Ephesus and yet he would stay there longer by far than any other city and he would describe to Timothy that God rescued him from the lion's mouth there. That Satan would have been zeroed in on planet Earth in Ephesus. And Paul was telling them, repent, throw this garbage away, leave your life behind, follow Jesus Christ, and they did. So when we go back to Ephesians 4, actually let's go to Romans chapter 6. I wasn't planning on doing what we just did with Acts there till yesterday afternoon, so I was going through a lot of his letters because they're all the same. So we're going to look at a few of them where in Romans 1 we read the description of a human being that decides not to acknowledge God ends up at a place of a depraved mind, a deluded mind, where truth isn't true anymore. Truth is what I say is true. And he explains to those in Romans the same thing he's teaching us in Ephesians 4. Romans 6 and verse 10, Paul writes, The death he died, meaning Christ, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, we are to die to sin once for all and to live for God. Verse 10. In verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. And, and the focus of that last statement there is that grace puts God's seed in you. Don't let any part of you be subject to sin. Make every part of you subject to righteousness because grace is in you to do it. The seed of God, the divine nature, grace, the Holy Spirit, dynamis power, all of that is in you. Since that is true, you're under grace and not the law, you have the power to say, no part of the world gets any part of me. Every part of the church gets every part of me. It seems impossible, but it's true. And that's what Paul is teaching. And turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians 
5, Paul is saying the same thing to Corinth. In verse 14, we'll just pick it up there. For Christ's love compels us. What he has done, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. That compels us. That pushes us forward because we are convinced that one died for all. We just read that in Romans 6. And therefore all died. And he died for all that those who lived should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Romans 6, 10 and 11. He died so that he would be done with sin. In the same way, you die so that you can be done with sin. 1 John 3. It's impossible for you to keep on doing what you used to do because God's seed lives in you. He won't allow that. There won't be any comfort there. Verse 16. So now, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. A worldly point of view would say, you go to church more than most people do. You're a good neighbor. You're a good person by the standards of this world. What God is saying is, I get all of you because I paid for all of you. Don't offer any part of yourself to the world. Offer every part of yourself as an instrument of righteousness. Verse 16, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if, that's a big word, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. That's what Paul is teaching us in Ephesians. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. We'll just look at one more time where Paul in each of his letters says the same thing. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. He's writing this letter simultaneously with the book of Ephesians. And he writes to them and he's telling them to send this letter to Laodicea and probably Hierapolis, these three closely related cities. Verse 1, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. This is the being renewed in the attitude of your mind. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. Whatever our minds are set on, that's what we're going to do. Not on earthly things. Verse 3. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's Revelation 19 when he comes on a white horse and we come with him. 2 Thessalonians 1. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. What is the definition in the Bible of idolatry? Anything that rivals Christ for his throne in my life. So in the moment where I'm doing something that he wouldn't approve of, that he has something else for me to do, idol. So sports is an easy one that was for me, but there were a lot that had to go. And a lot more than I realized until 1994. So Paul goes on here, 
Verse 5 again, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Verse 6, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. We just read that, Romans 1, 18. Verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. It's highly possible, because I know you guys, that you would be recognized possibly before you were a Christian as a good person. I don't know anything about any of you that would make me think differently. But we were all Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We were all disobedient, dead, and deserving of wrath. We didn't know it, but we were. And Paul is saying, that is what you were. Verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. That's all of us. He's not picking out the worst people in Colossae. He's picking out everyone. Romans eleven thirty two, Verse 8, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge, yep, epignosis, the deep experiential knowledge you've been doing what he's been telling you in the image of its creator. The new self is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Ephesians 4, created to be like God. Verse 11, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So we are God's chosen people as he goes on there. We go back to Ephesians 4. It seems like too much information. It seems like more than I'm capable of. Both of those things are true until I realize that grace's purpose is the power to do it. I have to choose it. I don't have to provide the power. I don't have to change me. God will do the big things. I just need to acknowledge him in truth. Verse 25 of Ephesians 4. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. We must speak truthfully. In other words, there's going to be times where I need you to remind me of what this says. Um, when we read what to do with the Word of God in a body of believers, if we take 2 Timothy 3.16, that the Word of God is breathed by God and it has in its purpose teaching, rebuking, correcting and training. Don't raise your physical hand, but raise your mind hand. Do you do those four things? And I will admit to you that we need to grow into that. Yes? Um, if we look at 2 Timothy 3, 16, 
where Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? Verse 17. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, we read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, that he gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers to equip people for the works of service. We just read in 2 Timothy what that is. It is teaching and training and correcting and rebuking. Raise your hand if you're not comfortable with all of those. Mine's staying up. They're necessary to get there. We're in a time in history where the church has no plans of that happening across the board. If we want to get to the place where we're not infants tossed back and forth by the waves, where we are bound together by ligaments, a step between this stage and that stage is you can tell me anything from God's word. And I can tell you anything from God's word. And it will be given in love and it will be received in love. And if we can do that, that will be a big step in our lives. Where accountability is speaking truthfully, Ephesians 4.25, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Um, I appreciate you so-and-so in Christ's church. That would be true for every person in this room. Um, that's truthful. There are times when you to me and me to you, there needs to be a change made. I want to share that with you, what I see, and I want to walk with it, through it with you. That's a harder step. I would dare say that there's more growth from that than there is from just, I appreciate you. So encouragement is, let's find the courage to spur one another on towards love and good works. And admonishing and rebuking and correcting are difficult things. They're more difficult even to give, I think, than they are to receive. But if we don't do them, we don't become fully equipped. 2 Timothy 3, 17. Verse 26, back in Ephesians 4, more of the same. In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. You have in your notes there, truth in love is better than holding on to negative thoughts. Um, I will undoubtedly make you angry. I will make you uncomfortable. I will be me instead of Christ to you at some point. Um, that's what, again, it's difficult to be honest there. It's difficult to be open there. It's difficult to be bound together close enough to speak the truth. And Paul is saying, if you don't do these things, Satan comes in. Satan can see if Adrian and I are uncomfortable right now. 
And he would love for Adrian to just hold on to what he's dealing with me and me to hold on to what, what I'm dealing with him and saying, I love him so much that I'm just going to pray for him and I'm not going to say what he needs to hear. And that's Paul is saying, if you go to bed at night and those are your thoughts, you're in sin. And if you keep those thoughts, Satan comes in. Because he doesn't have to know my mind, but he can hear my voice. He can see a problem. And a problem unaddressed is a foothold for Satan. Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Paul talks a lot about money and material things, and it's certainly woven into this, but obviously the, the context here isn't focused on money. The context here is that um, there's no bystanders. There's no 98% of us are going to pull the boat in the right direction, and you're going to come along for the ride. So you have a um, uh, in your notes there earlier, you have in verse 25, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone within that list, and it is a, a list from there to the end of the chapter in 1 Thessalonians 5 of command, 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 and he's saying part of the, the rebuking and the training and the encouragement is hey, I noticed that you haven't been involved lately. That's a problem for us as a church. Can, can, we, can we work through that together? What's holding you back? What's keeping you from being a bound ligament? Um, Paul says you're to warn those people. Um, that's another difficult thing to do. And it's not something that we just, we're going to practice right after this service. We're going to correct everybody that needs correcting to their face, but it's something that we have to pray about, we have to step into, we have to receive it, and we have to give it in order to be that church. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 as he's talking about the same thing. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 9 and 10, about having something to share, about doing your part, and he is talking about money there, so that's certainly woven into this. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you have received from us. So the goal is Ephesians 4, or, and 1 Thessalonians 5. Warn them, invite them, love them, encourage them, explain to them, God wants you to be as active a member in this body as anyone else in the body. Walk with me. Let's walk through it together. Let's not avoid the things that make us uncomfortable. If that doesn't work, he gives hard messages here in 2 Thessalonians, verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, this is key, not because we do not have the right to such help, 
but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. Paul says, I wouldn't let you pay me because I wanted to be a model for you. I wanted to do my share with my hands so that you would imitate me. And I didn't want money to cloud that picture. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food that they eat. So obviously it has to do with material things, but he's talking about idleness. That's the focus of these things. That, like I said, we can't, we can't jump all the way in to all the things that Paul has, but we have to move towards them. We have to encourage and admonish teach, correct, rebuke, and train till we're to the point where that's who we are and that's the normal way in which we operate. Back to Ephesians 4. You have a verse that we didn't look at in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, where the church is being held to the standard that Paul has for the Gentile church because they are the same. And Ananias and Sapphira, who were certainly believers, because no non-believer would be struck down for keeping something from a church. And when the two of them presented that they were all in and they weren't, God took them out. And it says in your notes there in verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So um, in Corinth and in Ephesus, I believe, because John wrote it, that happened there. That happened in Gentile churches where people were idle and disruptive and refusing to leave the world behind. And if they were true believers, God kept the standard in that church by removing them from the church. Um, Verse 29, we could spend the whole day here, but just look closely at what he says. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So I've got in your notes there, silence is better than slander, but truth is better than silence. It is very possible if you're like me, that if someone gets immediately in my face, the first thing that would come out of my mouth might not be something that should come out of my mouth. So be quick to listen, slow to speak in those moments. But I'm just not going to say anything is sin. And when I do say something, it's going to be something that can be used for me to build you up, which could be encouragement, correction, rebuke, admonish, and training, any one of those or all of those. And in the church setting, if Leo and I are having this conversation, and it doesn't have to be private, it is just a working together, it should benefit everyone. 
So in two ways, it will benefit everyone if a sore in the church is healed. And in another sense, anyone who has earshot, is what Paul says at the end of this verse, of how two people or four people solve a problem biblically, it will benefit those who listen. Difficult verse to obey, but probably one of the most important instructions from Paul. Verse 30, this is all because we are members of his body. For this reason, oops, I'm in the wrong chapter. Uh, Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It would be fair to say that every direct command of what to do and what not to do, every one of those disobeyed would grieve the Holy Spirit. We have this idea that, um, I think it's in all of us that if God gives me ten commands and I obey eight of them, man, he's, he's feeling good about me. Um, I don't think that's how God looks at it. And I don't think he looks at it as a necessary perfection, but I don't think he looks at us choosing which things to obey as acceptable. I think he looks at it as disobedient, and I lo- he looks at it as the Holy Spirit is the one who's instructing us, and he will be grieved if I don't do what God's word says. Verse um, Verse 31 Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander. Those, every one of those has come through me and could come through me again. I have to intentionally um, walk away from those things every day. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Matthew 7, 2 in your notes, therefore in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with, the same, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It is so awesome that God forgives us the way that he forgives us. That if I repent of something I have been holding on to, that I have been avoiding, that I did today, that I did a week ago, and I repent, gone. Paul says, forgive each other that way. If it happens 77 times, and they repent 77 times, Jesus says, forgive them. Oh, and Jesus says, by the way, in Matthew 7, 2, if you forgive that way, I forgive you that way. And if you don't, neither do I. So a born-again Christian can have unforgiven sin who believes that they're repenting while they're being unforgiving. That's why the parable of the, the manager that is forgiven a great amount of wealth and refuses to forgive someone else, um, that's, that's a bad picture for God. So Jesus simply says, I'll forgive you by the way you forgive others since you're following me. Heavenly Father, help us, help me to to take what really is the bulk of Ephesians 4 beginning to end is to become more like Christ and less like me. In Jesus' name, amen.